This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Misa. Hi, I'm Evan. We're going to talk about The Scarlet Plague by Jack London. Apparently first published in the, in London magazine in, I think it was June 1912 or May, May or June 1912. I couldn't find a copy of that that was accessible. There is a Sunday magazine version with a beautiful illustration, which I'll put in the show notes, uh, on the cover and then, uh, beautiful interior illustrations. There was a publication in Famous Fantastic Mysteries. I think that was 1949 or so. Um, And then there was a, I think, very short, yeah, 1912 publication as a book. Um, Very slim book, I would assume, (laughs) because it's a very slim story. And uh, there hasn't been no movie. There's been no... Did you see there was a Canadian started to make a movie? I saw a sort of online... Yeah, Yeah, I I did a Twitter search and a bunch of other searches. Because why why hasn't this been a movie? Um, Mm -hmm. Because it totally should be a movie. Seems relatively easy to do. Um, Would be totally epic in many ways. And it's very filmic in many ways, Mm -hmm. obviously. And... um, there hasn't been a comic book, which I think is even crazier because it would be a great comic. Just like with, with storytelling, you can do it so many different ways. It could have a lot of narration and panels and uh, dialogue. And, you know, the great thing about a comic, you turn the page and there's the big splash, the reveal of, you know, he's he's going around a corner and suddenly there's a man on the lake. Um, he's sitting on his horse and he hasn't, he's got two collie dogs and he hasn't seen a human being in three years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the perfect sort of f- comic book format reveal. Um, I think, I think this is just one of Jack London's best and he's a fabulous writer. So, um, Evan, you've done a lot of, uh, Jack London and I know my son, yeah. you reviewed this book years and years ago and I, I believe you loved it. I um, did and do. So, uh, what what feels new about this? Uh, you, you read this before, Evan? No, I, I've never read it before. What? Wow! No, this is the first time I read. It. I always meant to. And what did yeah, you think my, of it? My first time having I, read it, your first time. I mean, I, I think it's 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 so. I mean, I guess it's not the newest theme. I guess Mary Shelley did something yep, sort of she similar. she did a book called I, The Last Man. The yep. Man. But, you know, thematically, it's it's close to a lot of things that Jack London was talking about. I, like, that opening scene reminds me a lot of a short story he wrote, uh, his caveman short story, yeah. something of the stronger. The you know strength of the strong, yeah. Yeah. And then, like, you know, the... The, the elder kind of giving lessons to the young people mm-hmm. like that's that's seemed like almost the exact same scene and it's thematically about the same thing right it's about yep. civilization and and you know how how civilizations evolve in a way it, it's kind of even the inverse of the iron heel in some way sure the iron heel is what happens when civilization gets its act together and organizes society and and kind of 
creates this managed, ordered world. And that's the optimistic narrative. Um, even though it's all kind of that, that optimistic future set way in the future of that, of that story. The story itself is fairly brutal. But this is, this is kind of the opposite, right? And I'm just reminded so much of, of how that socialist thinking at the turn of the century was, was really obsessed with kind of planning and order, right? And, you know, just. Is it his greatest know, book? It fits so much with Jack London's obsession with, with kind of social Darwinism and, and how to create kind of a functioning society out of kind of our rude barbarism. Is it his greatest book? This? Yes. I, I don't think it's his greatest book. What's his greatest book? If he has one? Because <laughs> he has a lot of great books. Yeah, I I don't know. It, I usually think the last thing I read by Jack London is his greatest thing, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. his, his greatest? I still like the Iron Heel. I, 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 I don't think the Iron Heel is a very fun read, though, compared to yeah. this. This is... Nice and short. It's uh, it's got a lot of drama. I, I can see. I like, think Martin Eden. I got. I'd have to say Martin Eden. It was Martin Eden. Okay. Right. Yeah. But I, I like John Barleycorn a lot. That's that's one I like going back to. Mm-hmm. But that's not a novel. It's just kind of autobiographical. What do you um, think, Misa? Is this uh, his greatest? Story? I have. I haven't read enough to put a a pin on greatest. Um, but I I did love this. I I have a soft spot for Call of the Wild though. Oh, me um, too. Yeah. So that uh, uh, that uh, even in even in this story, he can't get away from dogs. So <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. he, in fact, he ha There are scenes in uh, Call of the Wild which I will want to do as a show at some point because it's I think it's just my one of my favorite novels, if not my mm-hmm. favorite novel. Cause it's so good. Um, there's uh, a scene in there where they're sitting around the campfire and the dog goes into a full atavistic mode and the man, uh, becomes a caveman. And it, it's that sort of recapitulated in this whole theme, which is you start off as a civilized person, um, and end up as a barbarian, right? An unwashed barbarian. Um, mm-hmm. and his, uh, his grandchildren are, are barbarians and, and what's really interesting about this story is that if if you don't know what's to come, which is basically people taking this this story as it is and then writing it just as a novel, which is called Earth Abides, right? Yeah. Uh, a great book, um, but also it's just a, a basically an expanded version of Jack London's The Scarlet Plague. It's slightly different in its events, um, and certainly different in its, uh, tone in place. I think it's more optimistic. I, it I, is I, I more, op- more optimistic feeling. Like, yeah, it's like more optimistic. Society held together a little bit more. It has know. some horror in it, elements in it, but because it's l- a lot longer, I think it's at least three times the length, um, you spend a lot more time in the desolation. Um, and I don't think it has, something that this one has that as far as I can tell, no other version of this story has. And I think it's kind of the essential character of this story. So I would say like all of those, all of these end of the world, uh, post-apocalyptic shows and movies and, uh, comics that are 
you know, the zombies come and then the group of survivors have to survive, which is just, you know, it's endlessly being redone with zombies now. That was what was missing for me when I read it the first time is like, huh, this is a zombie apocalypse with no zombies. Right? <laughs> they're everybody's dying and then the world goes crazy and then the zombies just don't exist so it's not a group of survivors fi- fighting off the zombies they're they're basically just fighting off the the harsh reality of what it's like to go from a from high civilization as in running water and toilet paper <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I have, you know, processed food and restaurants that can serve you hot and, and cold running ice cream all day long, right? <laughs> um, to, to, uh, utter barbarism, uh, you know, living uh, off the scraps of the old world and then get, running out of those. He hasn't seen soap in 60 years, right? Which I thought, wow, he needs to go find some house that hasn't, <laughs> he's got a medicine cabinet still it's standing. Right. This got, uh, I was thinking about Costco. There's got to be some. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people, I, we don't get a percentage, but it's, it's a huge percentage of the population. Don't just say, there's not many survivors. He says 500 people like in the world. 500 survivors. Right? Yeah. 500 in the whole world. In yeah. the whole and, world. That's what he said. Yeah. That's, and so all the stuff's still there, right? I mean, I think. Yeah, that's, that was weird. They burned, burned a lot. Right? But they I think that's one thing he sort of got yeah. right there was the stuff's just sitting around. A lot yeah. of it got burned, but, but see, how that, fast did they have burned it? Well, yeah. uh, but the the amazing thing that this story does that other stories don't that have the same sort of basic one of the ma- basic themes of this it's the last man on earth sort of genre or a last group of survivors on earth sort of genre is that this is actually science fiction doubly. First of all, it's set in the in a, in uh, seventy years. From when it's written, or is it 100, 100 years from when it's written, right? It's set in 2013. Yeah, the plague's basically now. You notice he got right. the demography, right? Right. He, he had the right population future, so he got him almost exactly yeah, cool. right. He, he does all sorts of amazing things. So, first of all, yeah. he sets it uh, 100 years ahead of when it's written. First of all. And then he sets it, again, another 60 years beyond yeah. that. So that... What we see is both, uh, he's so rich in ideas. He's saying, well, look, I'm going to give you the future of America as I see it, uh, unfolding from when I am in back in 2012 or sorry, 1912. And then I'm going to tell you, uh, what it's like in a future far past that. So that you, he's doing like sort of a double critique and the double critique is, um, he can look at where, what direction we're going and what effect that will have. So there's a whole thing that doesn't usually get picked up by most of the adapt, sort of, uh, not adaptations. I guess they're, uh, inspired by Very zombies, right? Yeah. So like if you walk, watch The Walking Dead, one of the things you'll never see them talk about is class. Mm-hmm. They talk about race a very slight amount. But it sort of disappears um, pretty quickly after because people are dependent on people rather than, you know, it's pretty hard to classify a person by their race after there's only six people left. You know, <laughs> they're all a race of unto themselves, right? Uh, uh, yes. 
Although he does say the Aryan sweep is coming again. He does. Uh, yeah, but that's that's him talking from his 19, Jack London talking from 1912. He's talking about yeah. language as well right there. Yeah. So it's not it's not quite as racist as no no I, no I wasn't thinking of it as like racist like Nazi racist but but it did feel white. It definitely definitely you don't see uh, he doesn't he doesn't seem at all interested in uh, race in this. It's all about class, and I don't think mm-hmm. I don't think London was particularly like if you look at his stories about race, they tend to be on the side of the downtrodden race, whatever that race is. Um, right. But on the other hand. He does think of hum- humans as basically pretty terrible. <laughs> he does. I, I found this way scarier than a zombie story. Oh, sure. Uh, so, yeah. The zombie, the zombie, I always think of zombies, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for something, right? Um, and usually the metaphor is like, um, the hordes of people you don't know who are, not your family and you can't trust them. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Like they're, 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 it's sort of a divide, divisive horror, right? Like there's us and them. And, it, and right. people get, when you do the zombie stories, you get sort of sequence where killing zombies is, is sort of a fun thing to do, right? Right. Sport. And, yeah. And it's, it's like, yes, they're a threat, but notice they're shambly and slow. So. You don't really need to um, worry too much, and when they do it as fast zombies, it's it's a scary story, it's a horror story, but it's not a science fiction story, right? Whereas this is because it's so much about like the reason I wanted to do this is my niece. I was reminded of this book. My niece uh, did a sh- uh, show. She did a essay about this. It was in her course at university, and I was like reading and helping her with it. And, um, it's like, oh yeah, this is such a great story. And it's about class so much, mm-hmm. which is so relevant again, but really that's what he's, he's targeting in the, in the, um, when he's, there's a whole section where he talks about the chauffeur yeah, and, and Vesta Van Warden, right. And the, the luxury airships that, the ultra rich have. And then he is explaining to his grandkids, um, about how you can't escape. <laughs> he says, you know, we took all the food, uh, and we left a little bit for our slaves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and who, who are, uh, Harlep says, um, you need, I, I wouldn't stand for that. I would just go into the forest. And he says, you don't understand who, who, uh, we owned the forest. There wasn't one bit of the earth you could go to and be free. And and if, the fact that he calls them their slaves, right? Yeah. And I was like, oh my god, <laughs> so much about class. And here, there's so many little details like that. So, um, what's our hero's name? J- John. Is it John? And he's got no I think so. Howard. J- no, it's James Howard. James Smith. Yeah. James Smith. Professor James Howard Smith or something like mm-hmm. that, right? Um, or John, maybe it is John Smith. Anyways, he, he's a professor of literature at a great university. Oh, and his father was a professor at a great university, the same university. Yeah. And his father was a professor, <laughs> right? So we're seeing 
what Jack London's saying about what's what's happening in the United States in 1912 is we're getting a hardening and separating of the classes so that by the time the plague hits in 2013 that they're basically like medieval England or at least 19th century uh uh England where you've got massive class differences and you've got the servants the servant class and i was thinking when i was re- reading it with my my niece i was thinking oh he's from the middle class but he's not he's from the upper class he he has yeah. three servants in his house right he has a a housekeeper a cook and uh a chambermaid and his brother has a, a high level job too and those other people work you know there's the they're working class and then there's the ultra rich and he's at the bottom of the ultra rich right mm-hmm. and that's that's the difference between um almost every adaptation or i keep saying adaptation uh, inspired by story is they never talk like they never talk about class and i think that that's really interesting cuz he's saying kind of like what he was saying in in Call of the Wild Buck Buck was a king, right? And then he's brought low by being kidnapped and turned into a slave. Right. Uh, and what he's his sort of thesis is, it's the same thesis that chauffeur who is a you know, he beats his wife, he beats them the what the Vesta, Vesta, the, Vesta. description, yeah, the, the epithets for her are like she's a goddess, basically. Well, her, her name's a, yeah. a goddess name, right? And and that she should be brought so low to be, you know, be, be forced to be the wife of a chauffeur, one of her servants on her estate, and it made me think, like, okay, maybe this guy's an unreliable narrator, but he's not. He's super reliable, right? There's almost no points in the story where you can't trust what he's saying because he makes himself so pathetic with like, he cries at every instance <laughs> that the kids are mean to him. And, and, and London is not trying to undercut what he's saying at all. He's trying to say, this is exact. So there's two nested, there's a nested narrative where he tells what happened. And he makes himself look bad many times, but he doesn't think he's making himself look bad, which makes me think he's a reliable narrator for what happened, which means everything that happened is what was happening, which makes it even more horrific. So I just think that that's, it's like a a super hard thesis that he's doing that nobody else seems to be interested in. Even in Earth Abides, I don't find that I think it's more, let's just spend time in this universe and see what meaning we can gather when the society is destroyed. Here, his thesis is, is the good, how's it, he almost, it's almost from that Edgar Allan Poe, the good and the bad and the worst and the best have gone to their eternal rest, right? The good and the bad both, uh, survive the plague, or maybe it's just the bad survived the plague, and the, the collie dogs are now wolves. Just like Buck, if he's to survive, unlike all the other dogs that die of starvation in, or beatings or falling through ice or whatever it is in, um, the Call of the Wild, 
that overcoming that, you know, going back to being a brutal brute beast is it's a brutal story and really interesting, just fascinating to think about and feels huge, even though it is only like two hours long. Yeah, I think a big part of this class dimension is about education, actually. He, he spent a lot of time obsession with education, mm-hmm. right? It, like, there's that whole scene. It's like you said, it's a short novel, two hours to listen to, but there's a, like a 10 minute section where he's trying to teach these grandchildren. Oh, that's great. That's so science years, fiction, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. He's trying to teach them how to, how to, you know, count to a billion or whatever, just, you know, in, he remembers how to be a professor yeah. at the moment, right? So when he's talking about his past, he talks about the education system, right? And then he's got that wonderful point where he's talking about the the, the, the courage, the heroism of the bacteriologists. Mm. How mm-hmm. it's, I almost got like World War One kind of imagery of just the bacteriologists marching across no man's land, you know, trying to just get a little bit of knowledge. And he's in awe of those people. He's awe, in awe of the education, Right. And then in that later part with the chauffeur and the, and the, and the, the tribe he joins up with, it comes back to education. If I can, this is the beginning of chapter six. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, next there were three young men, Cardiff and Hale, who had been farmers and Wainwright, a common day laborer. All three had found wives. To Hale, a crude, illiterate farmer had fallen Isidore, the greatest prize next to Vesta of the women who came through the plague. So another of uh, the, the crude, illiterate, um, you know, getting the, Upper class woman, mm-hmm. you know, and all the civilization has, has been torn away. Um, and then the final, the, the end of the novel is his his little sliver of hope that maybe he can plant the seeds of education someday, right? And right. His library, he's he's locked away, and maybe can be restored. Um, but I was thinking about this because this is set a hundred years after nineteen after nineteen twelve or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a early twenty first century when the plague hits, right? And there's still these huge gaps between it's, it's not a culture of mass literacy or mass education yet. I mean, that's a big difference. That's something we got I, I think he's the last. Uh, well, I think he's the last. Oh, oh I see what you're saying. You, not yeah. The, uh, yeah. 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 Um, I think Jack Linden imagined that 20, you know, the early 21st century would be like the world he lived in. And that's still the working class largely didn't go to school, you know, and was still basically uneducated. Right. That's why it doesn't matter that all everyone died and that stuff's still there because no one knows how to use it. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Really, this is very much a technocratic culture that got hit with the plague. Mm-hmm. Once that educated class died out, I mean, now you know there's millions of engineers. So there, there isn't. There is one adaptation. Yeah, I, I think. Oh, sorry. Go for I, it. I'm not as pessimistic as Jack London here, at least looking at the world today, in knowledge surviving. Mm-hmm. I think knowledge would survive. Yeah, but his point was whether it survives or not, it's just going to go, it's just going to circle back and and this is going to happen again. Like no matter what we do, it's just again and again and again. Like he just has no, uh, good, good thoughts (laughs) about humanity's potential. Doesn't he call it like near the end of the red, red history, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, there's, I, I, I was thinking that this book is sort of like, the red plague is people on earth. Like they're the plague. We are, we are the plague. He, he, he actually says in time, pr- the pressure pr- population will compel us to spread out. And a hundred generations from now, we may expect our descendants to start across the Sierras oozing slowly across generation by generation uh, over the great continent to colonize the East. 
Um, right. Oozing. What oozes? Pus, sores. Yeah. We are oozing across the earth again. Right. Yeah, the gunpowder will come. Nothing can stop it. The same old story over again. Man will increase. Man will fight. The gunpowder will increase. Enable men to kill millions of men. And in this way only, by fire and blood, will a new civilization in some remote day be evolved. Evolution of society through conflict. And then uh, when when he finds out when the grandkids find out about the gunpowder i'm going to get uh, i'm going to get grandson to remember this here gunpowder stuff edwin said softly and then i'll have you all on the run you hairlip will do my fighting for me and get my meat for me and you hoo hoo will send the death stick for me and make everybody afraid <laughs> and if i catch hairlip trying to bust your head hoo hoo i'll find i'll fix him with some that same gunpowder, Ganser ain't such a fool as you think, and I'm going to listen to him, and someday I'll be boss over the whole bunch of you. And I was thinking, like, how at this point, right, right before this, we were thinking, well, geez, that that uh, belief in in the death stick, like if you put the death stick next to somebody while they're sleeping, they'll die because they'll be, <laughs> they'll, yeah. They'll, the the juju magic of the um of the witch doctor who one of the kids wants to apprentice to right yeah <laughs> well we're thinking well this is bullshit well I I'm thinking poor Edwin he's he thinks he's, he's gonna smartest. be he's gonna be just like his grandpa well his yeah. grandpa didn't survive by his book learning did he right that's the sort of most brutal critique of education in mm-hmm. the thing is that nothing he did could fix anything right so uh he he he, he i was thinking well maybe maybe that's he is an unreliable narrator because he's he's got those two automatics at, you know he's sort of helping people he tries to help people sometimes he's a coward but no he tries to help people but ultimately the only reason he survives is because he's a human not because he's, um, because he knows how to open doors and, uh, open cans, <laughs> cultivate dogs and, and horses and ride horses. Like, there's nothing in his education as a literature professor that can help him in this world. And, um, one of the adaptations I didn't think about until quite late, so I didn't send you guys the link, um, there's a sh- there was a show in 1975 in the UK called Survivors, got remade in 2008. Uh, it's a BBC or maybe ITV show, created by Terry Nation, who um, should be. Uh, I I never thought about how important Terry Nation is, but he he was the inventor of the Daleks, uh, which doesn't sound like a big deal until you think about how they're used in the first Dalek episode, which is to be sort of a uh, an examination of the human future after a nuclear war. And th- then it's profoundly interesting. He also created uh, Blake 7, which I've talked to you about, Evan. <laughs> yeah. And probably you too, Misa. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, Survivors is, uh, it's basically the exact plot of the Scarlet Plague, except they don't zoom forward to 60 years mm-hmm. in the future ever. It's just everybody on, almost everybody on Earth dies from a, super contagious disease um, and the survivors just have to survive. So it's like a zombie apocalypse story with, a, with no zombies, just like what we have here. 
But one of the things that Terry Nation does in the first two episodes, he has a, um, I guess it's like a care, uh, caretaker at the, one of the schools, uh, children's, you know, education schools. It's like a, what do they call those in the UK where you go residential school? They don't call them that. Anyways, um, the mom finally goes and tracks down her kid after she survives the plague. And everybody's gone, including her kid. But there is a caretaker there. And he talks about how um, we're all doomed. <laughs> because <laughs> everything in this room, I don't know how... I mean, I, I know book learning on how theoretically things are made. But I don't know how to do smelting. So I can't make this... I can't even make this table knife. So once those table knife knives run out and the gas cans are dry... And I know that, you know, plastic is made out of oil, but I don't know how to do that. And even if you know how to read, it's going to take you a long time and you don't write like basically we're screwed. And and he he says this all the while he's wearing a hearing aid and he says, I have three uh, batteries left. If I don't find any more, I'll be deaf. And that's it. Right. And then he's done. And what's so shocking is after that, the the woman he's with is like, well, that's that's really depressing. And then in the next episode, she gives the exact same speech. And I didn't realize that she was just plagiarizing exactly what he had said to her, uh, put almost word for word, not mentioning that he had done it. But that's actually part of the education process, right, is what you do is you take in a profound piece of information and then you pass it on to somebody else by just telling them this profound idea. And you don't need to mention that you, where you learned it or even that you, how you learned it because she, it's not she's lying or pretending that she thought of these ideas. It's that the important information needs to be passed on. And the oral tradition. Say, say that again. The oral tradition. Or right. yes. And, yeah. and that's actually sort of the big thing that this, this story is all about, right? Is that it is him trying to teach his grandchildren something of value. And basically the only thing of value that I think he actually manages to transmit to them in the whole story, if we really, really think about it, is that there are ways of counting beyond <sighs> what you have on your fingers. Because mm -hmm. those, I don't have any sense that those books are going to be saved because even if somehow Edwin learns to read, He's going to have to teach someone else, and they're goat herders, man. Yeah, yeah did, but you, you know that that part that you just read, uh, Edwin was the smartest one. But but the other two, oh, one is of he them, the smartest? Because that's not what he he's, says. He he's, says he's, no, the, he's the most. Softest. He's the most like 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 his grandfather. That's he's right. Most, that's right. Most like his grandfather. But the other, but, but if you look at the other two, one of them wants to be a a, a medicine man, so like superstition, and the other one says, well, and uh, and, if, and if it doesn't work, I'll beat you up. So that's what that's we've right. got here. That's Superstition, exactly right. brute force, and this learning that's not going to, you know, go forward. Yeah, it's a very bleak vision. I, Yeah, this is what I, I, I struggle with with this story. You know, there's another Jack London novel where you have an English professor kind of mm -hmm. in a situation facing kind of the, the reality of social Darwinism, and that's Seawolf. Right. Is I was actually thinking uh, I was actually thinking the Iron Heel, 
But is but Iron Heel has that too. But well, even Martin Eden. But that's kind of inverted, right? That's the working class guy, mm-hmm. the big guy who who kind of works his way into that. But I, I think the Sea Wolf for me is a is a better comparison. But I, you know, I think London's problem is he does have this very pessimistic view. He's got the social Darwinian. That's the base, right? Mm-hmm. Conflict, violence, war, all that stuff, and he still is. He's a progressive, right? He still has this belief that social progress is possible. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written the Iron Heel, I mm-hmm. think, if he mm-hmm. didn't believe. That. And even in The Sea Wolf, the conclusion I get out of that, and you brought that, right? No, I've never read it. You I, haven't? I'm looking they, forward to it. Yeah, if you read it, it, it seems he sees it's really a dead end, This the, the, the captain, who is this totally embraces um, – like Herbert Spencer and social Darwinism, right? And there's d- the different models given by the educated, and and they're the ones who win. They or they they survive at least, right? They survive this, the tale. And here we have an educated person surviving the tale. And I, I think he, this society set 100 years in the future where the plague hits is not a good society. It's class ridden. It's education seems to be very divided. It's a technocratic culture but notice in the first chapter it's there's this obsession with food mm-hmm. yes <laughs> right but early on in chapter two here's what you get um a sensible question who who a sensible question and this was he who was asking about food obviously right that's what they're obsessed with mm-hmm. and he says a sensible question as i have told you in those days food getting was easy we were very wise a few men got the food for the for many men the other men did other things. As, as you say, I talked. I talked all the time. And this for this, food was given to me. Much food, fine food, beautiful food. <laughs> Sometimes I think the most wonderful achievement of our tremendous civilization was food. It's inconceivable abundance. It's infinite variety. It's marvelous delicacy. Right? So there's a kind of a this post-scarcity vision he has, even in the Iron Heel, of, of technology, expertise, social organization, you know, can produce these things. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's the idea is civilization has to suppress. It's almost like a Freudian argument, right? Civilization almost has to suppress. I was it. thinking about, I was thinking also about like, that's him looking back as an old man, right? Yeah. And he's become an animal essentially, but he's also got this self-reflective part that is especially focused on the past. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you, if you want to train animals, what do you do? You, you use food, right? It's, yeah. it's, yeah. It, it's a universal good. It's something every eater understands, right? Dogs are food motivated. You want to, and when you have a dog that's not food, food motivated, it's usually because they're sick or they're, they're, you know, worried about some threat or something. Um, so he's, he's a special, like that whole sequence at the beginning where they're talking about food. They're thinking about food. Other things are trying to make food out of them. There's the bear. There's yeah. the wolves that are trying to make uh, food out of, I guess they're dogs that are turned to wolves now, right? Uh, wolves that are trying to make food out of the goats. The goats are the, are the, the boys. And the grandfather's food too, at some points, because they're all wearing goatskins. And the the story is really about food because I think he's so much of a man. He even ex- uh, like so so no longer such as a, a man as he 
a man of ideas and books, right? He's collecting these books, but he doesn't carry any with him. What does he carry in his pockets? Is coins, right? Um, and the boys carry coins, and then the boys are uh, sort of forgetting about the coins. Now they're really into teeth, and they're going to make necklaces, right? So to dress themselves up, to make themselves look strong and get girls, because it's about sex and food. The sex is not super as clear in the book as the food is, especially at the beginning, but it actually is there. Uh, there's a couple of uh, parts other than the, you know, him saying Vesta should have been mine by rights. <laughs> right? She's she's of the same class as me. How dare he sully her with his brutish hand? Of course, he doesn't stop him, right? Yeah, that was crazy. That's uh, the, that's the uh, thing that could never be done in a Hollywood film you could never end the film with the hero basically having done nothing for saving the beautiful white lady right that's not possible <laughs> he has to save her and, and himself or himself too yeah. like he, he sits there and watches because the guy says he, stay he took, here he took the grand her their child their child to wife right at some point no, he was offered. He didn't. Uh, well, he yeah, grandchildren yeah. somehow. So I somebody else, connected. somebody else came and took his child. Waited sixteen Bertha, years for his. Kid. Bertha was his his wife, who was again uh, a hashlinger, was it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he says, "A Wait. good woman, though. Even uh, like nobody's imper. They don't even know what a hashlinger is, and he's still got the classicism to have to defend her, even though they call her a hashlinger, whatever that is. Right? <laughs> they don't. They don't know what a and then oh, there's a line there about um, he says what's this uh, what's a lady and he says that's that's a chauffeur squaw yeah and it's like wow really uh, the, the the value of the words is just down uh, he does a lot with the language here but I want to point out that it be, it's such a beautiful story with the with the um, opening and the closing being you know they're sitting on the beach um, talking about food uh, so I'm just gonna read. Uh, this is, uh, let's see if I can find it here. There we go. Here it is. The old, so this is, uh, I, I don't know. It's, uh, in the first chapter. The old man, the old man sighed but did not answer and they moved on in silence. The surf grew suddenly louder as they emerged from the forest upon a stretch of sand dunes boarding the sea. A few goats were browsing among the sandy hillocks and a skin-clad boy aided by a wolfish-looking dog that was only faintly reminiscent of a collie, was watching them. Mingled with the roar of the surf was a continuous, deep-throated barking or bellowing which came from a cluster of jagged rocks a hundred yards out from the shore. Here, huge sea lions hauled themselves up to lie in the sun or battle with one another. In the immediate foreground arose the smoke of a fire, tended by a third savage-looking boy. Crouched near him were several wolfish dogs, similar to the one that guarded the goats. And the old man um, is running. He accelerates his pace because he can smell the food cooking. Right? <laughs> muscles! He, he <laughs> muttered ecstatically, muscles! And then they do this whole thing where they put a, a grain of sand on it. And he, because he's all gums now, no mm. teeth, um... He, he can't. He starts crying and can't eat, and they give him some water, and then they give him a crab shell, and he starts crying again because he thought it was a crab. But now, <laughs> and then they get, the nice boy Edwin gives him an actual a crab, and he's like so happy, like 
his emotional range is is like, oh my god, he's really doddering, sort of, you know. And um, uh, it's 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 a beautiful, sad story. But I want to zoom to the end where we see this scene again. Um, Gee, he muttered to Edwin, the old geezer gets more long-winded every day. Let's pull for camp. Uh, while the t- the other two, aided by the dogs, assembled the goats and st- started them for the trail through the forest, Edwin stayed by the old man and guided him in the same direction. When they reached the old right-of-way, Edwin stopped suddenly and looked back. Harelip and Hoo-Hoo and the dogs and the goats passed on. Edwin was looking at a small herd of wild horses, which had come down on the hard sand. There were at least twenty of them, young colts and yearlings and mares, led by a beautiful stallion, which stood in the foam at the edge of the surf, with arched neck and bright wild eyes, sniffing the salt air from the sea, from off of the sea. What is it? Ganser queried. Horses, was the answer. First time I ever seen them on the beach. It's the mountain lions getting thicker and thicker and driving them down. The low sun shot red shafts of light, fan-shaped up from a cloud-tumbled horizon, and close at hand in the white waste of shore-lashed waters, the sea lions, bellowing their old primeval chant, hauled up out of the sea on the black rocks and fought and loved. (laughs) Come on, Granser, Edwin prompted, and old man and boy, skin-clad and barbaric, turned and went along the right-of-way into the forest in the wake of the goats. There's no there's no victory here, right? The victory is just survival. They're like the sea lions or they're like the horses. They're just other animals, right? But there's a bit of so beautiful, but, but the... There's a beauty the, in the um, nature, but there's, there, there's a harshness there too, right? So the, there is. Uh, but but it's, but Earth is coming back. That's what I was reading. Like Super the sea strong, lions are right? back, and the horses are back, and the and the uh, the what is he eating? The the crap like crap. We can have it all year, not just for yeah, one yeah. month. Yeah, like everything is back. <laughs> there, people are gone. Everything else is back. Yay! All the toothsome delicacies are back. <laughs> they are all back. I um, mean, in fact, uh, did you know that that they go where they are in this sequence? Um, is a real place, and that the cliff house he talks about is a real place, like a restaurant. Oh no! Yeah, so I'll see if I can find that section here. Uh, here it is. This is probably still, yeah, still in the first section. Uh, they get thicker every day. He complained in the thin, undependable falsetto. Who'd have thought I'd live to see a time when a man would be afraid of his of his life on the way to the cliff house? When I was a boy, Edwin, men and women and little babies used to come out here from San Francisco by tens of thousands on a nice day, and there weren't any bears then. (laughs) No, sir. They used to pay money to look at them in cages. They were that rare. What is money, Grancer? And at this point, he reaches into his pocket and pulls out the coin or whatever, and (laughs) the boy says, "Um, this is minted in 2012. He says, don't, you can't trick me. Those little marks don't mean nothing, right? Uh, which is going <laughs> to tell you that, that that plan to work out uh, what's in those books in that cave. Uh, it's possible <laughs> in 10,000 years or 1,000 years or ten, yeah, 5,000 years that somebody's going to find them and may, maybe find some value in them. But 
they're going to have to build up a whole civilization, and that's not happening in the next generation, right? Well, it's starting to happen a little bit. Uh, this is like the second to last page um, where he's warning them against the medicine men. Right. They call themselves doctors. Uh, they're cheats and liars, but so debased and degraded are we that we believe their lies. They too will increase in number as we increase, and they'll strive to rule us. So you got to imagine, you know, I'd have to go back and look that's at religion. What, that's religion, though, right? What people said about the origin of civilization in the early 20th century, what anthropologists or historians were saying, right? But you can just think about it, right? That, you know, once you had agriculture, right, you start to have a surplus, and then it becomes who controls that surplus. And probably, there's probably, it's probably true that some of the first people who were able to lay claim to that surplus were the ones who could say, well, I can explain why. You know, there's lightning, or I can explain why there's eclipse, or... Of course, they're not going to explain it with science, right? They'll explain it with some primitive religion. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, we know, like, Mesopotamia, those early states, there was a, that, there was, you know, that unity between the priest class and the, the thugs, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Those kings who ruled those city-states were essentially thugs, right? But they have these allies in these, you know, priests, medicine men, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep, it, it's uh, it's kind of like the. So it's not the civilization he wants, right? But no, it's, no, it's the civilization that 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 you know it's more cyclical, I suppose. But the funny part is, is he he's he he's his world, right? Uh, I saw people's reviews, especially like since your review back in 2013, my there's been a lot of people talking about this book, and they, they they're saying. He predicted Trump. I'm like, I don't oh, think, no. the, I don't think so. I think they're predicting Bush, right? Cause the, the legacy, what is the, 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 there's no, there's, president is no longer, uh, it's the board of magnates, right? Yeah. <laughs> Runs the country. And it was uh, somebody, the third or the fifth who is being sworn in as the head of the magnates board or whatever it is. And then, um, it's Vesta's husband, right? Van Warden's husband. Okay. Uh, she, yeah. she was definitely one of the, lo- what, lords of, lords of life? Yeah. L- lords of life and death, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there it is. Vesta Van Warden, one time wife of Van Warden the magnate, a high and stuck up beauty, who is now my squaw. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. Brought, brought uh, low. Uh, uh, yeah. But, uh, uh that, that, but the, the, the fact that they could just run off if they don't, if they don't like, life in their tribe, they can run off and find some other place to live, but it's harder, right? You have to guard, guard yourself all, you can't, you can't, uh, slap to sleep in a tree or something, you know, get eaten by a mountain lion or bear or a pack of wolves. And, um, Vesta Van Warden and, and I think also our hero, Professor Smith, are, they're just not strong enough and no person is, right, mm-hmm. to do it on their own. So they're sort of stuck in these in these systems. And so even if you have, like, sort of a slightly softer person like Edwin, who who is kind to the old man and, you know, says, listen, who who you, you believe in all sorts of things that you can't see. Gantzer's going to get to it, right? He's going to get to the part that we want to hear in the story, right? This is like, um, this is, a, he's trying to be, his only values as a storyteller, and they don't believe his stories. 
And they don't really respect his stories. But on the other hand, maybe they have some value. Maybe the kid will end up being a storyteller, right? Uh, but it won't be his, <laughs> like a lot of people, it won't be his day job, right? <laughs> <laughs> they're <just laughs> they're going to be, that's what they do around the fire while they're eating, is they listen to stories of what the old people old people say. Yeah. Um, he says, he says, if only a physicist or a chemist had survived, maybe things would be different. No. <laughs> I don't no. think so. He, he's, a, he's a reliable narrator, but he's wrong about stuff all the time. <laughs> um, and at one point, when he is talking about food, Evan, um, mm -hmm. I think he is conflating food with money. Um, and sort of just that's how they think of it now, right? Is that the real money is food. Um, because when he says, um, we took all the food for ourselves and we gave the worst of it to, uh, the, our slaves. Slaves. Um, well, they're not literally eating all the food, but what they are is taking the, the delicacies and the, the best parts of it. And they're shopping at, uh, the organic, organic expensive Farmer's markets, are, I can't remember. What's the name of that chain of stores that's for rich people to eat at? <laughs> you know, like um, grocery stores, Whole Foods. That's the one yeah, I'm thinking of. Right? The the, the poorers don't shop at Whole Foods because they can't. Because they can't afford it. So, um, if, if you're shopping at Whole Foods, you're not amongst the poors, is my, is my thinking. I don't know. It's, it's, it's expensive compared to uh, regulars, right? Yeah, he seems to think that much of the world was already reduced to barbarism even before the plague, right? When he describes the condition of the working class mm. in chapter 4. Uh, in the midst of our civilization, this is before the plague, right? Down in our slums and labor ghettos, we had bred a race of barbarians, of savages. And now in the time of our calamity, they turned upon us like wild beasts. They were and destroyed uh, the wild beast. They were right. Mm -hmm. So, well, I I think that that's, that's that, using because that, they don't know money. They just know no food. So he would talk in that way to them. But he doesn't. He's not too sensitive overall about language he uses. He talks about like the dean of faculty or something. You know, he's emotional. Kind of know what he's yeah. talking about. He's emotional, uh, but I think it's reliable. In uh, mm -hmm. that his. What he's saying is as it was, but he, he's also seeing it from his point of view generally, other than the fact that, yeah, he, he, he's, he's an old man now, but anything that happened in the past, I think we're fairly able to trust his description of it. Um, Micey, you know, I love this book probably so much because it's full of airships, right? I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was, unfortunately, by 2013, all the, um, all the rich people didn't fly around in airships, but he did talk about flying machines. So I'm, I'm guessing he, you know, what was, there was one guy, you see, he describes one, one brave fellow was going to reach 300 miles per hour in an aircraft. Right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so yeah, this is not about technology because he's, um, he, he's, he's got radio. He's got, uh, he's got airships and airplanes. But he's not, you know, figured out the jet engine because that's not really what he's talking about. He's trying to um, 
talk about social systems, I think, and and the brute reality of nature, which he he knows very well, right? You know, if you go up to the Yukon and the only food you can eat is the food you can find on the land or that you brought with you, um, and the only way to keep warm is to have a fire continuously going and not get wet. He really he did he's experiencing trying to communicate a kind of primitiveness that we don't normally have to experience. And mm-hmm. I think that, that that's what's so powerful when he does this story is is he's taking those prehistorical romances that uh Wells had written and that he had written and then he's saying, look, this is not just the past. This is not some past that we don't have to worry about anymore because uh, there have been black deaths, right? Massive plagues. That's one of the, one of the good reasons to watch that Survivor series is because Terry Nation is a very smart SF writer. He, he says, you know, we are going to need uh, the skills that we don't have because I don't know how to make any of these things where we sort of refined ourselves into, into, into an inability to do anything. We're going to be living off the corpse of the old world until we run out. And then if we haven't, you know, developed all the skills that we're going to need to basically become primitive again, we're going to be dead. Yeah. And uh, you can't, you can't just trust that mother nature's kind and, and pleasant. Like we think it is when we live in, you know, Oh, there's a line in there uh in i think it's the second episode or maybe it's the first episode um she says a, a city when the cities are collapsing with all these people dying um a city is like a giant pampered baby that's cleaned and uh warmed and and cuddled and coddled by all the servants who are going in and out of it uh, a city won't work if all the people aren't working to keep it going, right? And the, and we see that be, the beauty of nature taking over uh, California again when there's no humans to despoil it in the way they have been, right? The the bears are active. The 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 monorail, which is again, uh, I don't think it's a brilliant technology. <laughs> I was thinking, especially the way it's depicted in the 1913 magazine. I don't think that that looks like a very good system. <laughs> I think you're much better off with two rails and not elevated at all than the way they've got it there. But uh, the railroad tracks being, you know, just taken over by the roots of trees bursting through. Um, that's exact. Isn't there a, wasn't there a TV show that was called the life after humans or something like that? That yeah, did yeah. A documentary about what, how long it will take for all the things to break down and, it's going to be uh, interesting. We'll see if it happens. <laughs> I guess we won't, but somebody will. Or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that w- one of the interesting things was was uh, that everything fell apart because they lo- we lost contact with each other. Mm. Right? When, when you can't communicate with anybody else, you're alone and you have to start from scratch as opposed to, you know... All the, everybody else across the world that's no longer exists for anybody. Yeah, and uh, I think that that the connections that they they have grandson to grandchildren and f- 
like the kids talking about their own parents and what the parents know and how the parents act and 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 what's really interesting about this future society is we're actually seeing a very slim portion of it right mm-hmm. we only see the uh, a bunch of grandkids who are very much just just um teenagers i guess or maybe even younger it's a little bit hard to tell how old they are um and and a very old man right so we're not seeing the the production outside they're tending the goats which is a job for young boys right it's not a job for men it's not a job for women women have other jobs and men have other jobs or maybe no jobs but yelling at women and the young boys um uh, but there is a, a also a reverence for um, for the the muscles that London's a you know he was a guy who liked punching people and liked muscles so <laughs> he, he does talk about their bodies as being uh, kind of beautiful. Well, he said, "Let's see if I can find that part." He says, "As brown as a berry." There it is. Uh, here we go. The boy who led the way. Ch- this is right at the beginning. Boy who led the way, checking the, checking the eagerness of his muscles to sh- slow the progress of the elder. Likewise, wore a single garment, a ragged edged piece of bearskin with a hole in the middle through which he had thrust his head. He could not have been more than twelve years old. Okay, there we go. Tucked coquettishly over one ear was the freshly severed tail of a pig. In one hand, he carried a medium-sized bow and arrow. On his back was a quiver full of arrows, with a sheath hanging about his neck on a thong projected the battled, battered handle of a hunting knife. He was as brown as a berry and walked softly with an almost cat-like tread. In marked, con- marked contrast with his sunburned skin were his eyes, blue, deep blue, but keen and sharp as a pair of gimlets. I don't know what a gimlet is. Uh, is it a marble? Could be. Uh, they seem to bore in to aft about him in the way that was habitual. As he went along, he smelled things as well, his distended, quivering nostrils carrying to his brain an endless series of messages from the outside world. The very science fiction uh, there. Also, his hearing was acute and had been so trained that it operated automatically. Without conscious effort, he heard all the slight sounds in the apparent quiet, heard and differentiated and classified these sounds, whether they were of the wind rustling the leaves or the humming of the bees and gnats, or the distant rumble of the sea that drifted to him only in lulls, or of the gopher just under his foot shoving a pouch full of earth into the entrance of his hole. So he's really about getting in sort of, this is a, there's a whole sequence like that uh, in The Call of the Wild where um, Buck becomes the wolf, right? And his, so you know, becomes the, powerful beast that he he has genetically within him that was sort of repressed by the coddling of nature uh mm-hmm. or not not nature coddling of man um and 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 that sense of he was a slave he was the king of the slaves in as a uh, dog and as a wolf he's utterly free but he has he has to he's dependent on his body being strong and it's really interesting that dynamic between you know being a vigorous and powerful creature 
and then you get sick and you're you're gonna you're instantly gonna be left behind or eaten. Right? It's really he's doing something that few others do. Well, this, this this tribe that's formed doesn't leave this old man, eighty seven. Right. Right. Doesn't leave him behind. That's right. They, I mean, they that's send him off to be my... taken care of by the boys, right? He, they're the babysitters. Because he, he can't <laughs> Well, he can't, he can't defend himself against the wolves or the bear, right? He can barely, he can barely get through, uh, a, a walk without crying three times. Yeah. Well, he used to be pretty popular. Like 30 years ago, people wanted to hear what he had to say. <laughs> yeah, the, the grand, uh, the, the children, not the grand, grandchildren. Yeah. And they, yeah. they do. They want to hear it, but they want to hear it the way, you know, uh, not an old man who's reminiscing about, about, uh, yeah, and the, uh, there's a there's a point he one of the kids makes about why why do you go and call it scarlet rather than red? And yeah. I I thought that um I think somebody on the Wikipedia entry said it was uh, he's he's uh, referring to the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. Well, I guess he could be distancing himself from that and saying, look, I'm really writing uh something else. He's- yeah. Because, but why is it red, right? He could have picked the yellow plague. That's true. But, but, but when he says that, he actually says, I think it was there. He says the scarlet, he says, uh, he, he says, he says, um, he's quoting something. Right. And, and it, it was the scarlet of the maples can shake me like the cry of bugles going by. There's several times when, which, which is from a poem by somebody named Bliss Carmen. Um, and uh, do you want to hear the poem? Yeah, yeah, please. Um, there is something in the autumn that is native to my blood, touch of manner, hint of mood, and my heart is like a rhyme with the yellow and purple and the crimson keeping time. The scarlet of the maples can shake me like a cry of bugles going by, and my lonely spirit thrills to see frosty asters uh, uh, like smoke upon the hills. There is something in October said the gypsy blood astir, we might rise and follow her when from every hill of flame she calls and calls each vagabond by name. Mm. Which I think is kind of cool because that's what's left now is vagabonds. Um, but there's several times it, when he's speaking, when because he was an English professor, he, he throws out quotes from famous uh, other authors. He quotes Rudyard Kipling at one mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And, Isn't um, there something and, about a frothy... Yeah, yeah. So the the fleeting systems lapse like foam. That's from a, a poem foam, by right by somebody named George Sterling. Oh, so, George Sterling. Oh, I know him. Uh, yeah, well, not yeah. personally, but uh, Sterling was um, a California poet who wrote a a, a pretty good poem called uh, "The Wine of a Wine of Wizardry," which is on the PDF page. Pretty interesting early fantasy sort of style poem. Um, and he was, uh, oh, we know him because he was, uh, mentioned a lot in that biography of London, remember? Right, right. That's, so that makes perfect sense. Yeah. 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 Um, well known as a, um, uh, a poet rich guy. <laughs> poet rich guy. I, you know what? Isn't there a poet rich guy in this story who he says, I knew his poems? Um, and then I couldn't save him. Yeah. And, and he gets, he gets him and his wife are beaten up and he, he just watches thugs, it happen. Right, some, some, uh, slaves that are rebelling. Yeah. Really interesting. 
Um, I note at the end of the Bliss Carmen Wikipedia entry on uh, just his life, um, it says, uh, his ashes were buried in Forest Hill Cemetery in Fredericton. I guess this is New Brunswick. Um, 25 years later, on May 13, 1954, a scarlet maple tree was planted at his gravesite, gravesite huh. to grant his request in his 1892 poem, The Grave Tree, which goes like, or at least this is part of it. Let me have a scarlet maple for the grave tree at my head with the quiet sun behind it in the years when I am dead. So the scarlet and death obviously do go together. Um, <laughs> blood, right? But I thought, I think there's something, um. I'm just talking about the word scarlet, not yeah, about yeah, the Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, he, he makes a point of it and, um, I mean, he's also, you know, he does say toothsome delicacy when he, <laughs> what do you mean, yummy? Uh, yeah, you you know what else though? Scarlet fire. I was thinking that the the you know sure. there was so much reference to fires and people putting on fires and the way fire spreads. I was thinking that the scarlet plague could be some sort of reference to fire as well, mm. and how it eats up everybody and in everything in its path and just mm. like and turns it to dust. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I I'm I'm very impressed. Uh, again, this is a fascinating. Oh yeah, I'm looking at the illustrations from the the book, and it shows the the airplanes, which look like 1914 airplanes, because that's when this book is published, right? 1912, and the airships of the rich. Um, Paul talks about it often about how uh, the ultra rich are making bunkers in New Zealand. You know, they fly. There's a town. I think there was a YouTube, or it was a, a Vice News bit uh, that's on YouTube about uh, some New Zealander guy who's going around trying to find the bunkers that the richer like um, I'm trying to remember the name I don't know the names of all the uh, the top guys one of the the, the guy who sued um, sued somebody because uh, was it Hulk Hogan who was that guy god damn it um, Hogan Hulk Hogan was sued by this rich guy Peter Thiel. You know, you guys know this guy? No. For what? Um, oh, I don't remember why. <laughs> I mean, I don't follow the details. But he, this Peter Thiel guy is super rich. Um, he's one of the co-founders of PayPal, right? Along yeah. with, um, uh, wasn't the other guy, uh, Elon, Elon Musk, right? Um, so yeah, he's network, net worth of 2.2 billion or something. And, uh, he got his New Zealand citizenship in like 12 days, even though you're supposed to live in the country for, for six months or something at least. Um, and he bought a piece of property in rural New Zealand so that when, uh, the economy completely collapses and they start, the, the poor start coming after the riches, he'll have a bolt hole, right? Um, and that's in this book. The rich all flee to Hawaii, right? In their yeah. airships. Yeah. And, and when they get. Dirigible. Yeah, and they're dirigibles. And then when they get there, uh, the plague had preceded them, right? It, it's, um, it's. It went with them and it preceded them. That's right. And one of the kids, um, it's mentioned in here was on the airship. His parents all died on the yeah. way to. That's the one that married the baby. Right. That's right. Uh, on the way to British, the wilds of British Columbia to escape the, uh, 
ravages of the Scarlet Plague, they crash into Mount Shasta. And, and he says, hoo hoo, that's, you've heard of Mount Shasta, it's north of here. <laughs> so there is a, there is actually like the, the tri- there is a whole world. I, I would love to see this as a, a TV series somehow, because I think there's so much to be explored. A just beautiful comic book illustration would be great. Mm. I, I, I found it incredibly visual, this book. Like, yeah. just, he's so good. He's really good at writing nature. He, he, he loves to write beautiful sentences and full of ideas. I just, I think it's a crackerjack book. It is. It is. <laughs> Did you notice, I w- when I was, when I was, uh, listening to it, um, and they were talking about Vesta mm-hmm. and, and, um, and she, she felt to me kind of like a, like a, a metaphor for the whole thing mm-hmm. because she was the top woman, the top mm-hmm. woman in mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, daughter of the top woman. Yeah. Daughter of the top woman and married oh, to da- the top da- daughter of the top man. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And, and married. So, but it was as good as you could get for a girl. Mm-hmm. Good as you could get for a girl. And then, and then, um, and then she was, you know, married to the, as about as bottom as you can get and drowned by her drunken husband. Um, like for no reason, like it, it, it was like, that's what happened to the whole world. You go from the top to the bottom and mm. for no reason at all. Right. I'm looking at the pictures of her, um, in the, in the book. There she was boiling fish chowder in a soot covered pot as yeah. her, as her husband who used to be the chauffeur of one of the family chauffeurs. Uh, isn't there a scene where it says, um, this is probably in this whole section where he, somebody, somebody left an umbrella behind and. Uh, oh yeah, that wasn't her. It was the other one, the other top woman. I can't find umbrella. It wasn't called a parasol probably. There, no. Yeah, here it is. Uh, the destinies of millions such as he, she carried in the hollow of, oh, I love this line, in the hollow of her pink white hand. And in the days before the plague, the slightest contact with such as he would have been pollution. Oh, I've seen it. Once I remember there was Mrs. Goldwyn, wife of the, one of the greatest magnates. It was on a landing stage just as she was embarking into her private dirigible that she dropped her parasol. A servant picked it up and made the mistake of handing it to her. To her! One of the greatest <laughs> royal ladies of the land. She shrank back as though he were a leper. Another indication of that <laughs> disease and indicated her secretary to receive it. Also, she ordered her secretary to ascertain the creature's name and mm-hmm. to see that he was immediately discharged from her service. As such, a woman was Vesta Van Warden and her chauffeur and her, and her the chauffeur beat and made his slave. Yeah. And yeah. Then, so that's what, that's what the plague did to the world. Yeah. It, it, it turned the society upside down where now the br- most brutal of, of, uh, low class, uneducated horrors, uh, can be masters over a goddess. Yes. <laughs> she literally named Vesta, a, a goddess of the hearth. Ha ha. Now she has to tend the hearth. Right? Wow. Brutal. And, yeah. and yet, I don't think of there, there, I don't think that there is a class system in this, right? It's, it's too small. 
right? Oh, no, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just about strength. So uh, the husband is stronger, and he says, you're my wife because I'm stronger, right? <laughs> and then the kids are, can be mean, 12-year-old kids can be mean to an old man because they can wield this, uh, the uh, sling and um, uh, shoot arrows that can kill. Yeah. But I th- I really think this is I, I just can't agree with with London's pessimism here. I don't know. I, I think the novel's fascinating, but it is really. I, fascinating. I, have you guys ever studied any social ecology? A little bit, like Murray Bookchin stuff. I mean, no. he, so his idea essentially is that there there's nature, right? What he calls first nature, which is you know the wolves the the, the 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 deer and all that stuff that 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 kind of natural selection right the Darwinian stuff that's sort of first nature right and we as cultures we kind of observe that and we kind of put our own values onto nature all the time so we see nature as as competitive like in the nineteenth century we saw nature as competitive in the struggle for survival because mm-hmm. that's the capitalist world we lived in right the same way how in the Middle Ages they talked about the king of the beasts as a lion well they had mm-hmm. kings mm-hmm. right. And we just kind of impose on nature reflections of our own society. That's part of the argument. But the big thing is, he says that out of this evolutionary process, what, you know, we got out of, we came out of that. So we came out of first nature, but we're the only species that adapts to our nature, that transforms it. Mm -hmm. And there's evidence of that here. They're goat herds. Mm -hmm. They've domesticated the the goats. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're beginning to have a division of labor. Uh, They have, Social organization, right? And so this is what he calls second nature, right? Is the, the our ability to make cultures, right? So when I'm talking to people, sometimes they'll say, "Well, human nature is this way. That's why we can't have good things." <laughs> I hear that all the time, right? But then you, you might have another conversation, and they'll say, "This happens a lot in China." Well, they say, "Well, that's our culture," mm-hmm. right? And these seem contradictory ideas to me. Either mm-hmm. it's human nature or culture. And they they contradict, like takes, like, I guess sexual desire is something we could say is, is, is from first nature, but marriage is definitely second nature. Mm. There's been thousands of different ways of framing marriage and family, even interpreting love. Like if you just look at how the concept of love has changed throughout cultures and time and places, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, there's some, we're bound by nature in some ways, like I suppose Eskimos, they're limited in what they can eat or something because of nature. Mm-hmm. But by and large, humans have transformed nature mm-hmm. and overcome it, right? And that's not an ability that would be lost if civilization went away, right? I, I think he's a little too pessimistic here on the Paleolithic. That's why I, 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 I sort of know what people, know, at least know more about what people in the early 19th, 20th century were saying about the Paleolithic. Because I... I the stuff I've read on it is a little bit more optimistic. Well, I, 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 I think he is ultimately he's saying we're going to get right back to where we are, right? Mm-hmm. He yeah. absolutely yeah. thinks that, well, at least that is the character thinks that we're going to get yeah. back to where we are. I think he's right. Um, I don't. I think he's also right that it's not going to be like in in two generations. I think it's going to be uh, unless some some others part of the world has somehow not has had as much damage, right? I think it's going to take thousands of years for the people to become like making printing presses and 
distributing newspapers again. It's going to be a long time. Um, because no, I guess I would say that's not necessarily the end goal, right? I mean, there's throughout human history, there's been so many ways of arranging societies. The only there's there's many ways to pass on information from one generation to the next, except besides printing presses. There is, Mm -hmm. there is, and it's it's not a teleology. And maybe for London it is. Maybe you know. Well, I think the specialization though is is like the fact that they have like goat herder. Is, uh, it's, you know, it's sort of ubiquitous for these guys. And they're also hunters, right? And trappers. And, and, uh, I was thinking a lot about what I love about London is he doesn't write usually about anything he doesn't know anything about. So when he, when he's talking about the mussels and the crabs, uh, remember he started his, his life as a, uh, oyster pirate, right? Yeah. And, uh, so cooking, having cookouts on the beach of, Oysters that you've stolen, um, you know, that food's going to taste really good <laughs> because you've got it yourself and you, you know, it, it, it didn't sit on a store shelf and he's, he's very happy about that. And, and that, so I think it's the specialization that is what he's aiming at is that, yeah, sure, human, humans will go on and there will be, uh, ways of, I mean, it's interesting to think uh, think about Micey, you heard the uh, radio drama adaptation, right? Yes. Um one of the ways they uh, the, what they solved the fact that it's a 2-hour book and putting into a 29-minute show is um they just dropped the um dropped the framing sequence, which I think is really important for the for this book. Like, it's a whole other story. It's it, and I, I think it's much more interesting, actually. Even though, um, even though I like the uh, the hearing the plague part, that's that part is very familiar because mm-hmm. we've seen it in many many other stories where you know, it's it's the it's the Walking Dead and it's the it's the Day of the Triffids and right. That yeah. sort of end of the world, everybody's dying 28 days later. We've seen that a, a thousand times. What we haven't seen is, uh, the aftermath 60 years later. Um, how are people doing? And if you, mm-hmm. if you've been watching along with or reading along with the, um, the walking dead, uh, it, it's now like at least 10 years after the walking dead plague started. And they, they've run out of bullets. They've run out of, uh, gasoline. And now they are on horseback and they've got lances. And, uh, their society is becoming, it, it, it was one of the interesting things about that series of books is that they, or the comics I'm thinking of specifically is, um, is that he's allowing that progression to happen beyond what you see in any of the, normal zombie stories where it's just about look the zombies are loose what are we going to do how does this zombie system work and how are we going to stay alive for the end of the movie right <laughs> this is you know continuing how how do you have a society and one of the things they do that amazes and astounds and convinces people in uh, to you know to join them join their societies um they're going to have a movie night right <laughs> Which is like, what? Amazing. Right? They can project things on the wall and it shows you a world that doesn't exist. Um, because, you know, sure, they have leftover books, but 
having never seen a movie before, you yeah. born into a world like that, that is, um, it, and that's just like 10 years down the road. When it's 60 years down the road and all the movie bulbs have burnt out, um, and grandpa's talking about when I was a boy, I went and saw a movie. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be, yeah, whatever, grandpa. Uh, we care about whatever it is we care about now. So there, uh, I, I'm not sure it's, uh, the, I think he's right to be pessimistic in that, uh, people are mean. People are horrible. And, uh, you know, societies do break down and especially ones that have repression, like the one that you see in, in, uh, in the, um, in the, in the book, right? In yeah. 2013, it's really bad. And, um, I see, I see it more and more now. Um, there was a story, some website or Twitter account had to pull down a tweet because it had a guillotine in it because that was a little bit too radical. Um, <laughs> for that organization. But, you know, when Peter Thiel is making his bunker, uh, in New Zealand because he thinks the economy is likely to collapse and that, uh, the all the slaves he's been repressing are going to come for him. Um, maybe maybe it's not so uh, unrealistic. So maybe oh. I need you to explain more what you mean by his pessimism because I I see him no, pretty I, pretty I, accurate. I can talk about the opti- I can I can I can. There are optimistic stories of this ilk, okay. and um, one for like I think King's take on this is essentially optimistic. You're talking about the stand. The stand. I think the stand is essentially optimistic. The bad guy in that story is the state. It's the state that creates the plague. It's the state that basically makes it worse. Um, And then both sides, the good, I mean, that's a good versus evil kind of story. Mm -hmm. And that kind of paints it a little bit. The supernatural element. Both sides create states. And both states suck. That's the the, the theme there, Mm -hmm. right? And it's, and, and yeah, there are, bad people and violence and slavery and things like that and the backdrop of it too. But essentially I think it's, it's a fairly optimistic story about human cooperation and the triumph of solidarity. Um, and, and that, or at least that's how I, I, I read that story. Maybe I'm, I, I read it entirely wrong. Um, but that's the kind of the side, that's where I come down. I, I think if you are acculturated to states and authority and hierarchy, and you lose that, yeah, you, it's going to be messy, I think. But that's—I don't think that's our natural bent. I don't—I don't think we're naturally hierarchical. Uh, yeah, I think I, I, what I learned of the Paleolithic teaches me, and what I've read about the Paleolithic is that essentially our cultures are cooperative, and even our, our yeah. evolution. Like the fact that when we're in pain or in anguish, we cry and we yell out, mm. and, and that doesn't make sense in a kind of a dog eat dog world. If you're if you're suffering, if you're in pain, you don't call the predators, right? We call out in pain right, or right. cry because we're calling our friends, right? Uh, yeah, the community to save us. But there is exploitation within the system, right? So uh, <laughs> people people just say shut up and clout people because that 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 was a real thing that happened and still is happening, I'm sure. Um, you know, be, the battered battered husbands and battered wives. Are real, um, yeah. And that exploitation yeah, but- of of humans by other humans, especially when you we can distance it uh, by you know it's not me, it's the corporation you work for. 
Yeah. I think that's largely a product of the hierarchies we've created in our cultures. Well, and also, like, I haven't, I haven't read that book, but you just, you said the bad, there was bad guys and good guys. And the, the, that's the thing with this one. There are no bad guys. And, and, when, and like, when you think, when you asked about a positive one, I was, and Jesse, you had just said Day of the Triffids. Well, that has a positive ending. Like, but there was a bad guy. Um, so that, that's the problem here is that there isn't. It, mm. it was just random and it just happened. Mm. But I, I also don't think that, that humanity is, is as negative as this is. Like, I, I do agree that people are cooperative and, and that their base instinct is love, not hate. It's just that we've taken a wrong turn right now. <laughs> and we need to recenter. Are you talking about in the book or in No, I'm in talking about world. in general. Like, I don't have the same, ne- like, this I find is an extremely negative, pessimistic work, but I don't think it's indicative of humanity, truly. Yeah. Hmm. It's like something in David Graeber's book on debt, he makes a point that, like, people think about the Earth's first economies, and they always say, well, barter is the first economy. And he, he kind of debunks that and says, actually, where you get barter is where people who are used to a market currency-based economy, and that falls apart, like mm-hmm. hyperinflation or war, they'll go back to barter because they'll say, well, this pig is worth, you know, 50 chickens. Because they kind of do the math in their head because they're used to currency. They're used to that exchange. Mm-hmm. But if you actually look to pre moneyed economies like neolithic or or even you know more recent societies that didn't have money it didn't have really strong states they they did debt basically that's that was his argument debt? it's social debt, debt though right rather yeah, than yeah it was kind of a social debt yeah like the example he gives like, everybody knows i gave you this yeah. are you going to be like that guy who didn't give it back right yeah so the, the example he gives is your cow dies, so you go to your neighbor and you say, my cow dies. And he'll say, oh, here, have my, I have an extra cow. But, you know, three years later, you know, he may come back and say, you know, my, my son loves your daughter. That's right. And now you owe. And you have to pay back that debt, you know, and it's not, you never pay back equally the way we do. I pay back the debt to the bank. The relationship's done. You didn't do that, right? Barter is from people who are used to exchange in currency. That was his argument. Mm. And it's kind of like, I think that's the way with states. If you're used to, you know, the police being the barrier between, you know, you and the criminal or something. And that the police go away or the state goes away. And you kind of, you revert, you revert to the customs and traditions you're used to, the culture you're used to. And if that culture is based on hierarchy, yeah, then you'll go back to that. That's like in, um, under, uh, Neverworld, right? The barter system. Mm-hmm. And they, they keep such tabs and uh, about how much you still owe and how much, you know, now you've added to it. Mm. And- that, it's a sort of a fantastic accounting there, but it, it definitely was. I, think about how you do it in the family, right? Um, you you don't uh, you don't usually like uh, say, okay, I just made you dinner. That'll be eighteen dollars, right? <laughs> you say, I made dinner yesterday. When are you going to make dinner? And, <laughs> and then you know there can be rifts. Uh, but those things, I guess, are analogous in a, a money to society too. You just call it a bankruptcy, right? <laughs> or um, he's he's cheating on his. Uh, I don't know. He's yeah. There there are analogous systems. There is a book. I I I don't want to reread it, but I think I might have to because it's so interesting to think about. I want to hear what Evan has to say about it. Cause, um, What's good? 
It's called The Unincorporated Man. Do you know this book? The Unincorporated Man? Yeah, so uh, the idea about this book, I did a review of it. Is it from the 50s? No, it's a no, 2009, 2009 book. Okay. Um, and it's uh, it's fun because it's it takes a, an old trope and then uh, jiggers with it a little bit, which is um, a man from the past wakes up in the future. Um, and the future he, I'll just read the Wikipedia entry here for you. Um, uh, the Unincorporated Man is a social, political, economic novel that takes place in the utopian, dystopian future. I don't think it's utopian at all. After civilization has fallen into complete economic collapse and been revived, the reborn civilization is one in which every individual is incorporated at birth and spends many years trying to attain control over his or her life by getting the majority of his or her shares back. Uh, a task made all the more difficult given that modern medicine has created extraordinary long lifespans. Um, so the guy who somehow uh, had some sort of investment uh, in this comes back to life after being dead or, you know, was frozen. And, um, and then he, 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 because he was pre the incorporation system, he owns 100% shares in himself. Um, but the way it works is, uh, when you're born, I think 50% of it, oh, you know what? I did a review on this. I'll just dig that up. Um, Unincorporated man, because I think I probably outlined this better than man. Let's see if I can find it here. There it is. Yeah, this is this is back when I was smart too, Misa. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here it is. Um, uh, authors Danny and Etan Colon have envisioned a future in which the institution known as the corporation has replaced the convention of person. When, a, when born, each child has a stock of 1,000 shares issued in his or her name. 10% of the stocks are held by each parent. The government gets another 5%, and the rest is held in trust until the age of majority, after which the balance of stock is given to the child uh, or adult. He or she can then sell or keep his or her stocks uh, as they so desire. Holding a majority of your own stock ensures relative autonomy based on the amount above 50% you hold. The primary difficulty comes when you realize you need to invest in yourself. If you want an education, you'll need to pay for it. But without an education, the pay won't be much, so you can either get education money by working at a low-wage job and deriving whatever pro profit percentage your current stock level allows, or selling your stock off for cash. This typically manifests itself in the majority of humanity not owning majority in themselves. With the possibility of living for centuries thanks to the ubiquitous nanotechnology, you'd be wise to invest in an education, but in so doing, you'll lose control of your majority and thus perhaps have to work at jobs that your shareholders choose, take vacations where your shareholders agree, and generally have your life dictated to you by those who hold your stock. Why not just take the money and loaf? Who cares what the shareholders say? They can't, they can't make you work, can they? Well, yes, they can. The corporation system is enforced by a forced mental audit that is applicable whenever the shareholders think a corporation, uh, think, think a corporation who hold a stock in is committing malfeasance, shirking on the job, deliberately getting fired, etc. 
every corporation is trackable thanks to GPS-like implants and is thus ultimately accountable to his or her shareholders. Is the, the ultimate invasive tyranny a, sil- a slavery of the bottom line, a profit motive enforced by an invisible hand that you shook a deal with? See, there, there's a good writing at the end there. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, the, the idea here is like, uh, if it, it, rich people can say, this kid looks like he's, he's gotten, getting good marks in school. I think I'm going to invest in him. And they say, I'll give you $2 million for 15% of your, your stock, well, that's great. Now I can go to university and become a doctor, right? And then every time you get paid for being a doctor, that person gets 15% of your profits. Ooh. So it, it's not a, like a happy future, and it's kind of a long book. I think it, it might be, let's see. Yeah, 24 hours. Jesus Christ. Ooh. Okay, so I think I just want Brian, <laughs> Evan to read it for me. <laughs> Tell me what he me? thinks of it. Yeah, cause this is, this is, um, uh, it's basically, I don't know, Ayn Rand took over the, <laughs> the U.S. government and, wow. and, uh. Well, it's actually the Wikipedia can't decide if it's utopian or dystopian. It's definitely, it's, it's definitely dystopian. Yeah. I don't think there's a, did I even tag it with utopian? Oh, uh, you, you know, I usually do. I usually do tag it with both because every utopia is a dystopia to somebody, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, for, people would think this is a good idea. Of course. And, and the, the reason they think that is because they, they think personal responsibility and, but they don't understand capitalism is now eating, uh, individual human beings from birth. Come on. That's a, that's why it's a satire, right? <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.